0: From heroin to Hollywood. Welcome to the Bureau of Lost Culture. This is Stephen, and this is the second part of my conversation with the writer, countercultural activist, Zen priest, and erstwhile movie star Peter Coyote at his farm in Sebastopol, California. You don't need to listen to part one first, but it does set the scene and tell the story of how Peter moved from an affluent Jewish childhood straight into the heart of the counterculture in San Francisco in the 1960s. In the experimental theater groups that he helped found and the radical collectives, the Diggers and the Free Family that he co-founded. Last time, we left him as the 60s countercultural dream had started to turn somewhat sour. And we found him isolated and in the throes of drug addiction. But before that, If you wanna join us, if you wanna support us, or just encourage us, come to bureauoflostculture.com. Sign up for our newsletter, and thanks to all those who have already, who supported us so far in various ways and with lovely words, thank you. And of course, particular thanks again to Jenny Spires, who introduced me to Peter Coyote. Thanks so much, Jenny. And before we begin, I wanna make an announcement. The Bureau of Lost Culture will be at this year's amazing on My Festival with not one, not two, but three events. Firstly, with Uber music producer Joe Boyd made records with everybody from Pink Floyd to Nick Drake and almost anybody you can imagine. And Craig Sams, the revolutionary food activist, founder of Whole Earth. And Rosie Boycott, counter-cultural journalist, founder of the magazine Spare Rib. All in conversation on the subject of... Whatever have happened to the counterculture. Secondly, I'm going to be with influential 60s musician and artist Vashti Bunyan, and a rare appearance, and with contemporary Mercury nominated singer Sam Lee, the amazing Sam Lee, and with Joe Boyd again on the subject of the power of the song. Can music still change the world? And finally, we're going to be presenting an evening dedicated to bone music. I'll be giving a talk on the underground culture of forbidden records made with X-rays in Cold War, Soviet Union. And the amazing Sam Lee will be back. He's promised to come and sing for us and be recorded direct to X-ray by my collaborator, Paul Hartfield. Gotta see that. I'll put a link to all that in the show notes, along with information about my guest, Peter Coyote. Right, Let's dig in to part two of our conversation. This time we cover all sorts of stuff. Communes, creativity, charisma, drugs, Zen Buddhism. How Peter navigated Hollywood Babylon. He gives some pretty amazing advice for actors and artists. In fact, for all of us. He dropped several truth bombs on me. And to be honest, I'm still slightly reeling. We start off with him reading a poem from his collection, Tongue of a Crow. Enjoy.
1: Here's one that was written back in the day. This poem was written probably in um, 1968 or 69. It's called Toxic Sugar. This woman, my child in her belly, seed in a fallen apple has fled. Frostbitten in Jemez, cracking a rabbit carcass by her fire. Her chill worms its way into my California cabin. My slap failed to obliterate her scorn. Driving from town, her hand dancing in my fly, I break, skid onto the gravel shoulder, splayed against a phone booth. In the dark, we fuck and bite like mink. I was never certain she could read. Lighting my lamp, the box of matches blazed up, blistering my fingers. There's always heat when I think of her. And tonight, licking my fingers, I can think of nothing else. Thanks for
0: that, Peter. That took us back to 68 and 67 and we kind of started off in the late 60s with your poem London Run and your visit to London. And I think before we dig into the communes and the free family, maybe you could talk a little bit about coming back and what happened next. When
1: I came back from England, I was very sick with hepatitis. Hmm. When the dead asked me to go to England, I said, I can't, I have hepatitis. And they took me to see a very expensive Park Avenue doctor who dispensed speed and vitamin shots. And he gave me a bag full of uh, vitamins and stuff that was supposed to cure me, held me up at Heathrow Customs for two hours looking through this bag of syringes and stuff. But anyway, when I came back, I was really ill and I found this place and I was there by myself for about three months. And this man, Rolling Thunder, came out and he gave me some really bitter teas and stuff to drink. And I finally got better. And little by little, friends moved in and we had a commune.
0: It happened here too, I believe, that people start moving out of the cities. They started setting up communities and communes and it becomes more agrarian in some way. Tell us a little bit about that. What it was like, the, the good and the bad.
1: So I was living on a little ranch in Olima, California which is about, oh, 50 minutes outside of San Francisco. It was at the end of a mile and a half long dirt road. Um, It was a five bedroom and kitchen and one common room made out of redwood at the end of the uh, 19th century, had no electricity and had a five gallon hot water heater. Hmm. And so the diggers had strings of communes There was Forest Knolls, which was halfway between the city and Olima. We had a place in Salmon River. We had a place in Black Bear, which was the most remote in the Trinity Siskiyou Wilderness. And they were all the same. We had to learn how to live together. We had to learn how to do chores. We had to learn everything. And mostly, it was the women that had any money. So the women had the power of the purse because a mother with a child could get aid to mother with dependent children. It was like welfare. Yeah. It was a s- small stipend, but it would cover maybe the rent and electricity. And then we would have to hustle and trade and steal and do whatever to keep food and groceries. But you'd have to say, well, yeah, I'd be happy to go shopping for you, but I need a fuel pump for the truck. So you have to buy me a fuel pump and then I'll go get the diapers and the hand wipes or whatever. So for one reason or another, the communal movement taught a lot of people how to live together. Most of them that were not privately owned broke up. Hmm. Um, there were Black Bear is still running. I'm one of the 200 owners of it. Uh, Olima was taken over by the National Park and all hmm. the buildings were raised. So then we just moved into the world. The, the free family were all these other families that became attracted to the digger notions. The Free Bakery, Olimpali Commune mm-hmm. in Novato. Um, and little by little, we couldn't just call ourselves the diggers. So we became known as the Free, as the free Family.
0: You were living that life fully then, were you, from that time, for those seven or eight years? Or-
1: when the counterculture ended, my dad had died mm-hmm. in uh, 1971. He'd lost all his money. He had been a very rich man. And he died maybe 25 million below broke. Mm -hmm. My mom was bankrupted, knew nothing about it, had to sell her homes and his books and all his lands and hounds. He owned thousands of acres of ranch land and farmland. Everything was sold. And so I had uh, a daughter by a woman who'd run away. So I was the single father of a daughter. I was uh, a heroin addict and uh, I had no money and I had to face a come to Jesus moment. So I had been living on my farm in the East where my dad had died, and my daughter was missing her mom. And we were having to leave the farm because it was gonna be sold for debt. So I went back to California and dropped my daughter off at her mother's for a visit. And I went out and I met a guy, and we got high that night in his apartment and must have been very strong dope. And when I woke up in the morning, he was dead across the table. He had overdosed. And I thought, well, if that had been me, my daughter would go to an institution. She would have been taken care of by the state or by her truly crazy mother. So I just slipped out the door and I called a doctor friend and the doctor gave me enough, it was called dolophine, but it was like Demerol or something. Mm -hmm to get over the sickness, and I uh, I interviewed about six psychiatrists until I found one I wanted to be like. And I had was dating a woman who was a Zen student, so I started to sit Zen. And it was very hard for me. I mean, it was very disciplined, very rigorous, and I was a wild man, had been living indulgently for 10 years. But little by little, the combination of being drug-free and – the discipline of sitting zazen and working on my stuff all came together and it stuck and it kind of healed me of a lot of afflictions.
0: With the troupe and with The Diggers drama was part of it and acting theatre as counterculture you know you're taking it out into the world uh making it kind of in a way immersive because the people who come into The Diggers store you know, they can actually become part of the performance in a way. That's right. So, what happened to that part of your life on the commune? How did that play itself out?
1: You know, some people are born with some quantity of charisma for whatever reason. I don't know why people paid more attention to me than they did to some other people. I Mm -hmm. honestly don't know. But at some age in your life, I was a fat kid till I was about 16. And then all of a sudden, from May to September, I grew three inches and I lost 30 pounds and I looked like myself. And I started to notice that people were treating me differently. Right. So that made me something of a leader. Hmm. I had no authority, really, but my own. And I had to learn, you had to learn how to negotiate without physical authority. There were no police to be called in. You know, if you have a problem, we spent a lot of time with the Hells Angels because they were there and we had to learn how to deal with them because we were not going to call the police. So I can't say that acting per se fed into my counterculture life. Mm -hmm. But what happened was. Around 1975, one of my mentors Really, my primary teacher was a poet named Gary Snyder, uh, a guy who had lived for nine years in a Zen monastery in Japan. He was a poet. He was a thinker. He was a first among equals in the beats. Jack mm. Kerouac had written a book about him called The Dharma Bums. Mm. And I met him and became an admirer of his and then a friend. And I used to go out and do chores with him on his ranch, on his little homestead. And um, we became very close. So in 1975, he won the Pulitzer Prize and the governor of California asked him to form a state arts council, uh, a state agency, and he wanted it run by all working artists. And Gary asked me to help him. So I was appointed to this committee and it was just my years in the counterculture had taught me to talk to everyone. You know, if you show up in a town and you've got long hair and you're in a truck with two big dogs and a wife and kid, it's like nothing anybody's ever seen before. So you have to practice diffusing people's anxieties. You have to make them listen to you. You have to you develop skill sets. Hmm. And what happened was I was very good at this politics. And under my watch, the budget rose from one to 18 million dollars a year and we created art programs in communities, in prisons, in schools, all based on what we call the creative process, which is the way that all artists work. Um, not to divert too much, but all art starts with an impulse. And you hmm. make a line, you write a line, you make a gesture, you you type a few words, and then you back up and you appraise what you've done. And then you go back and again, you follow your hunch and you back up and you appraise. And that is actually a dialogue between right and left hemispheres of the brain, between digital and analog understandings. And so we were able to demonstrate to the legislature that you didn't have to be a great artist to teach this. Hmm. Any working artist has to be able to do scales and then interpret the scales to make music. So... We sold artists to the state of California as creative problem solvers with great success, going to schools and making movies with the kids on teenage pregnancies, going into the prisons and, you know, helping people find skills and talents. There was no violence in our programs. Hmm. So when that ended, when Jerry Brown ran out of office, my my term was up, but some about 2 years before that happened no it was in 79 i thought i'm going to try the movies hmm. i couldn't think of any other way that i could be make a living i just i was working as a poverty artist on a government program getting $600 a month and teaching in public schools. And I thought, I'm never going to be able to send kids to college or have a house or a family or anything.
0: There's this quote from you, which I think is a little bit tongue-in-cheek, but it's funny anyway, which is that you said, if I didn't need health insurance, I'd still be living on a commune.
1: If I could have gotten free education mm. for my children and right. health insurance for my family, I loved mm. living on a commune. It was actually a wonderful life. But we didn't own the land. We didn't own the houses. So I gave myself five years to Hmm. try the movies, and I was very systematic about it, and I got lucky. I got in at a time when the current crop of leading ladies were getting worried that they were meeting their sell-by date, and they wanted to be seen with an older man. So just after I got in, the game changed, and they wanted to be adored by younger men. But, so I was 40 when I got my screen actor, 39 when I got my screen actor's killed agency card, union card. And I had a pretty good 10 year run as a leading man. And then I was 50. And at 50, you're sort of like cold Marmite toast. <laughs> you know, you just, you get, you get smaller parts. We would, say, we would say with regard to Marmite, it's an acquired taste, right? Yeah, exactly. What I had really wanted to do when I was in college is I'd wanted to go to London and go to Rada, mm. because I still believe that Rada and Lambda turn out the best English speaking actors in the world. But by the time I became an actor, I had two children. I was married. There was no way that I could take two years off and go to London. And it was a handicap mm. because I was in the big leagues and I was moderately talented actor. I was OK. I wouldn't embarrass myself but I knew that I wasn't ever going to be great without some kind of training. And I knew that I was never going to be Daniel Day-Lewis or Meryl Streep. And that was the standard that I Mm. aspired to. So I was grateful that it gave me a living. It gave me some notoriety. I traveled the world. But as soon as my kids were out of graduate school, debt-free, I retired from films. And the other thing was I became an actor so that I could – write without having to sell what i wrote because writing to me was really sacred and Mm. movies afforded me that the truth of it was i was not going to be in the top rank and that was hard for me to deal with and it's you know it's like a public embarrassment when you do when i see a movie and i realized oh my god why did i do that you know and it's there forever it's (laughs) indelible in your, in your book, your memoir, the, uh, maybe the introduction when you talk about that
0: you're at Whoopi Goldberg's wedding. Yeah. And <clears throat> she was a friend of yours from the old days, right? And, um, and you're at this party, aren't you, where she, you know, she's getting married, um, interestingly, to a union leader, right? So she's still flying the flag. There's various mates of yours from the old days there. David Crosby's there. It's like these two parts of your life were together. Um, But you're certainly by all these kind of A-listers, aren't you? The kind of, I think you describe it as, you know, the the top of the pyramid, Steven Spielberg's there, you'd work various other actors. And it was just, well, you're describing it as a strange experience for you. You're sort of there with them, but you're not of them. Yes. You were observing the whole thing from the outside in some way. Is that it?
1: Well, I think that's what a writer does. Mm -hmm. That's certainly what Jews do often. Huh. Whoopi Goldberg, who used to be Karen Johnson, had moved through the whole Bay Area counterculture. And so there were various people in the audience that I could tie in to my future. But, you know, I have friends who were very pronounced weathermen, real, real out there bomb throwing revolutionaries. And they refused to read my book because they read the first chapter and they decided I was just pimping myself, you know, it was just a name dropping exercise. Nobody gets away scot-free.
0: You said that um, you lost 18 friends, and of your friends who you didn't lose from that
1: time, are you still connected with? There is a couple that I'm not close to anymore, but Mm. my core group pretty much, I'm I'm still in contact and pretty close.
0: Because Alan Moore said to me, Alan Moore is the writer, he said to me that counterculture starts with
1: friendship, which I thought was a quite powerful. I'd never quarrel with a good writer, but I might say you could use as an alternate affinity. A sense of palpable connection with another person? Yeah. I may not live like this guy, but there's something about his mm. or her mind mm. that is like I feel I'm in I'm affinity with.
0: When you went back into... And you know, successfully, I think, into acting and film acting. I mean, you've made over a hundred films, right? One hundred
1: sixty. One
0: hundred sixty films, TV <laughs> yeah. series, many voiceovers as
1: well. I mean, Ken Burns' Vietnam,
0: yeah, epic, well, I've
1: right. Done fifteen or sixteen with Ken.
0: When you look back, you know, after all that time, when you'd done both, you'd done the experimental acting, you'd done the counterculture, as you call it, and then you'd gone into the movie industry. At the same time you're practicing Zen Buddhism. I mean, did it feel like you were somehow gonna bring all this stuff into play together? I mean, it started to all make sense in some way. If I were to try to simplify
1: it, Mm -hmm. I'd say that my entire life has pursued my curiosity. Hmm. I, I never had a plan. I just did what I was interested in and It usually resonated with the larger culture from no intentionality of my own. It just seemed to be that way. So during the 60s, the diggers were anonymous. Hmm. So guys in the various rock bands could be in my house and they could hear the brightest minds Hmm. of the time discussing and analyzing the culture and what was going on. And I would read it in their interviews in Rolling Stone, you know, and I would be jealous and envious and thinking, Mm. you know, this motherfucker's taking credit for, you know, what so-and-so said or what I said. And then I realized, well, wait, he didn't take a vow of anonymity. (laughs) I took it, you know, so if I don't like it, maybe I should change it. Hmm. So there was like a young man's hunger to, uh, present yourself, you know, and to show who you were and what your life was about. That was at odds with the digger rigor of anonymity and free. But when I was thinking about going to uh, Hmm. Hollywood, my wife at the time said, well, go ahead, but we're not leaving Zen Center. So because I was working for the governor for a period of time, I could get free plane flights to L.A. and I could get a government car. So when someone asked me for a meeting I would just accept it and fly to LA. Otherwise I could never have survived the audition process and getting through. But I had a I had a a difficulty to wrestle with which was I'd spent 10 years living anonymously and free and now I was going to go into Babylon. You know the The hallmark of ego and vanity and narcissism and greed and ambition. And how was I going to do this? How were you going to survive it? Yeah. So I kept meditating on it. The first thing I realized was I was going to have very little control over the movies I made. Hmm. I was trying to earn a living. But I could control the way I made the movie. So I decided that I would be prompt. I would Mm -hmm. know my lines. I would Mm -hmm. treat everyone equally. I'd make no difference between the star and the little PA on the set. Um, And I would not compete with other people. And I would just do my best to keep the atmosphere light and relaxed so that people could do that. I could Mm -hmm. do that. And then I also thought, well, wait a minute, I'm 40 years old there's younger guys that are better looking and more talented. How am I going to crack this scene? What am I going to do? And I decided by some lucky, I don't know, lucky guess that I was going to have to already be a star when I went to Hollywood. Hmm. So I began studying movie stars and I stumbled on Paul Newman and I thought, well, wait a minute, this is a guy kind of like myself. He's not inordinately talented but he's talented enough and he's I'm not as beautiful as he is, but how does he go into a room? And I thought, well, he doesn't go into a room and try to charm anyone. He doesn't try to be their best friend. He's thinking, who are these guys and what are they about? And are they worth my time? And that was a magical understanding because I would go in and heretofore I'm treating these three guys up there as if they're my grade school teachers and they're going to decide if I'm talented or not. Yeah. And all of a sudden I would go into the room and I thought, Paul Newman doesn't have any attitude. He's already made it. He doesn't have to be arrogant. So he wants to find out who these guys are. So I would just reserve that Mm. judgment and they could see me studying them. And it made me different from everyone else who came in. So I'd say, you know, I, I appreciated this script. I've read it, I have my ideas about it. I, I don't know how you're thinking about it, how you're seeing it. So I'd get them talking about themselves, they loved it. Yeah. And, and then when the time came to audition, I'd say, all right, well, I'll give you the first take on my character and then give me notes and uh, sort of the way you see it and I'll do it again. And I bought myself two tries. Hmm. So I'd do mine, and then I knew nobody could resist giving notes to an actor. So they did. And my agent told me that I, that I closed more auditions than any actor he'd ever met, 50%. And so it was that skill, that lucky guess to, to mimic Paul Newman's behavior and to retain my personal power. I have a friend who's an acting teacher who has his students go into auditions with a piece of hard candy in their underwear, just so they have a secret, just so they're not overwhelmed by these guys, <laughs> and they can sit there and hold their own mud. So, and this was this was explained to me once by Milos Forman. I auditioned for the role of Salieri and Amadeus. And I thought for sure I had it because I was there for six hours and I read with Sean Penn and I read with Tom Holtz and I read with all these others and I didn't get the role and I was crushed. So I wrote him a letter and I said, you know, uh, I've only been doing this a year. If you could tell me anything that I could have done better, it would be a real boon. I so wanted to do this movie and work with you. And Milos Foreman, God bless him, wrote me a handwritten letter He said peter if you weren't talented you'd never have been in the room but the only thing a director is looking at is the face that the lines are coming out of he said look at your face you look like a healthy well-adjusted happy pretty normal person now look at look at f murray abraham's face it's riven with jealousy and envy, and he said, "Which one is going to look like Salieri?" <laughs> I love it, love it. And I mean, he just lifted the whole yeah. weight of like impressing these guys, or you know. And so from then on, I was like bulletproof, you know, and I did amazing.
0: I did really well. Bear in mind, you know, you described it as Babylon, Hollywood Babylon. You went into that thing, and you, you know. A world of narcissism ambition immense talent without any doubt charisma and people climbing the ladder and maybe stepping on, on on each other's heads on the way up um did you were you able through your practice and through this attitude to keep your integrity you think and were you able to survive it
1: well <laughs> it depends what you mean by integrity <laughs> I mean I was able to hold on to my own behavior mm-hmm. and I was able to look at other people as expressions of Buddha nature mm-hmm. some or some less developed than me and not be overly judgmental about them but it is a dog eat dog culture and there mm-hmm. are people that have no restraints in the backhandedness and underhandedness that they'll do and that's also part of Buddha and that's mm-hmm. also part of human nature and so, yeah, my, my meditation practice and my study of Buddhism was my ballast that hmm. kept me upright. So I did survive it, but, you know, I don't know if I would have survived had I been 20 hmm. and had the success that I had and been on the covers of magazines and being written about. But I had I had, had huge failures in my life by 40 you know, families falling apart, people dying. Between 1965 and 75, I buried 18 of my friends. So I was not going to be fooled by the mythology and the bullshit of Hollywood. And I was not going to be fooled into believing that I was better than I was. Hmm. I'm a competent actor. And, you know, I did 160 movies. People had a lot of chance to look at me and they didn't find it overly compelling and so you know who am i gonna blame so i had you know i had a great run i made a lot of money but it doesn't matter how much money you start with if you get divorced twice you don't have a lot of money
0: (laughs) i love it i love it let's talk zen okay you're now a zen priest and it sounds like zen and your practice got you through uh, with flying colours by the sounds of it through the Hollywood experience. But you talked about it as something which healed you. So before that, you'd had this dark period of heroin addiction and maybe a hedonistic lifestyle. And just as a sort of general comment, bearing in mind that, you know, the mescaline for you was part of your new identity, did you f- feel that for you personally and and a, in a wider way that, that drugs were an essential part of the counterculture, even with all its dangers. um, Do you think that it could have really happened without that, without the acid, without Owsley, without Timothy Leary, without that tune in, turn on dropout mentality, you know, for for you personally, or or in a wider sense?
1: Well, yes, I do consider it an integral part of the trip. I mean, I probably would not have take an LSD if I hadn't read Tim Leary and realized he was a Harvard guy. But when I met Tim Leary and I realized what a loose cannon he was, (laughs) you know, he asked me to go on a speaking tour of America with him. And I said, no, the first three rock and roll light show concerts in San Francisco were held as benefits for the San Francisco Mime Troupe. And the first one we dedicated as a fundraiser to Tim Leary. And, you know, I had a friend later on who clawed his eyes out on a bad acid trip and drowned trying to escape from the asylum. So the idea of just throwing out LSD, like an experiment across the entire population, struck me as madness. And that first generation of people that were taking acid were real spiritual pilgrims. Hmm. I mean, they were really looking for something. A decade later, kids were dropping acid and going to the mall. So, yes, drugs were a big part of it. And today, I don't really put drugs down. But what I say to people who are, you know, maybe overly fond of psychedelics is that psychedelics are like flying to the Grand Canyon in a helicopter. The Vista is overwhelming It gives you a different sense of scale. It shows you the interconnections and dependence on things. But you flew there in a helicopter and you can't get back without the helicopter. If you get there by meditating, you leave yourself little breadcrumbs along the way Hmm. so you can find your way back. So no single experience is gonna overcome a lifetime of habits. Jerry Garcia, Mr. LSD, died of an overdose. Phil Lesh from The Grateful Dead has a new liver. Uh, Bobby Weir, you know, struggled with alcoholism his life. So what Zen gives you is the grain-by-grain grain building of a solid edifice, little by little, dealing with your stuff as it comes comes up, hmm. confessing your your poor nature to yourself hmm. and renouncing it, becoming intimate with all sides of yourself. And then by the time enlightenment does or doesn't happen, you have a stable base to support it. You've built a life that's grounded in good habits and good, uh, good intentions. So when I said earlier in our conversation that we were the problem, we were trying to solve, I meant it because we were all human beings. And we were all ignoring the shadows we were dragging Mm. along behind us which is our unexamined human nature and anytime you don't own your shadows you project them onto other people as an enemy but it's really you you're a human being we're like a radio that's tuned to the human frequency and we can be mother teresa or we can be hitler it can come up and if you're not paying attention and if you're not strong enough to accept the shock that you could be a murderer, you could do anything anyone else could, you're actually a very dangerous person because, you know, you wind up dropping bombs on a hotel in Baghdad in the middle of the night, killing women and children because you don't like their leader. But we're the good guys. So what could possibly be wrong? Here is
0: a sidebar. It's from the foreword to Peter's memoir, Sleeping Where I Fall. Every culture has its priests and devils, its intoxications and its follies, and the counterculture we created was neither more nor less ethical, diverse or contradictory than the majority culture. You can't grow tomatoes without shit, they say. And while we may have had much of the latter, We also had plentiful tomatoes. The ideas and moral positions that emerged during this period. The civil rights movement, the peace movement, the ecology movement, feminism, holistic medicine, organic farming, numerous alternative physical and spiritual therapies and disciplines, and perhaps most importantly, watershed political organisations. They were abetted by the people remembered here. Flawed and imperfect people certainly, but genuinely dedicated to creating more enlightened options for themselves and for others. One side of the story should not be sacrificed to the other. We may not approve of the fact that Sigmund Freud was shooting cocaine and writing randy letters during his investigations of the psyche, or that the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. may have enjoyed sex outside of marriage. But these very combinations and conjunctions of aspiration and frailty, reveal the complex humanity of such stellar people and allow us to believe that we too, flaws and all,
1: can mature and contribute something of worth. The fundamental delusion of human beings is that we have a separate self that is somehow solid like an organ that has somehow fixed characteristics. And meditation will show you that you don't, that you have an awareness, that your eyes have awareness, your ears have awareness, your body has awareness, and the mind is kind of the coordinating, you know, traffic director. But the good news is by not having a fixed self, it means that you can change. And it means that when you can recognize something, you can let it go that your actual nature is the nature of the universe itself. And Buddhists call that emptiness. I refer to it sometimes as the kind of pregnant energy of the universe that's always manifesting itself as forms, hummingbirds, leopards, mountain ranges, civilizations, whatever. But the energy itself is the largest common denominator, which leaves nothing out. And so do it to experience that physically you actually can't do that without meditating Mm. you can have a short visit on psychedelics but you can't maintain it as a daily practice unless you have a daily practice of meditating checking in where am i failing where am i falling down on the mark
0: Peter, you are a Zen priest now. What does that mean? You lived at Zen Center, so did you get some transmission? What does it mean for you to be a Zen priest?
1: So there's no difference between being a priest and being anybody else, except a priest is an archetype. It's a person who is willing to be helpful to other people, to counsel them, to do ceremonies of birth and dying and all of these things. Um... And then I was transmitted about six years later. And transmission is the kind of recognition by your teacher that you're kind of of one mind. He Hmm. sticks a meat thermometer in you and he takes it out and the temperature is okay. So he transmits his authority to you to ordain your own priests and create your own lineage. Hmm. So you change from a black priest's robe to a brown robe as as a teacher um but my practice is mostly secular Hmm. and i have some difficulty with the formal monastic practice although i was trained admirably there i have a lot of respect for it and a lot of love for it but there are some problems with american culture Uh, meaning if you live in japan you go to a training monastery for two years And then you go and you take over a little temple Hmm. and you spend the rest of your life in service, doing ceremonies and funerals and babies namings and all that stuff. Well, there are no temples in the United States. So all those old priests have tended to congregate around the big monasteries and they don't get jobs and they get old. And then the monastery has the responsibility of caring for them. So, Most of those monasteries, including my own, have had some scandal Mm. or something where the teacher has fallen down and people have left and they've carried their Buddhism with them into the world. And I'd venture that most people, most Buddhists in the United States are secular. I mean, I have robes that I wear Mm. for ceremonial occasions, but by and large, I have students, and, and we discuss secular issues, and we discuss how to live by the Buddhists' precepts in the real world we all inhabit. Hmm. Uh, it's not that the monasteries are unreal. Um, I mean, I think, I think there's a degree of training that I wish I had continued in some way, but I couldn't live a life that way. I couldn't support hmm. myself and do that.
0: Can you tell me about your life now? You know, like where where you live, and you know, what's your day? What are your days like?
1: So I get up every day. Mm -hmm. Uh, I meditate. I try to do that really every day. Uh, I have two dogs that I live with that have to be walked and fed. When I'm writing, I try to get to my typewriter by nine thirty or or ten. I had a book last year on act using acting exercises, and. Improv to create altered states in people. I have two books being published this year on Buddhism. So Things As It Is, colon, Vernacular Zen. I'm looking to loosen the Japanese gift wrapping and make it more accessible to Americans, less exotic. And the second book is called Engaged With Things As It Is, A Buddhist Perspective on Politics. Hmm. How to Engage Politically without surrendering to anger and rage and hatred and divisiveness. So that's what I do. And I make jam. I have 40 fruit trees on my little farm and I make jam and it's too much of a pain in the ass to sell with all the regulations. So I just give it away as gifts and I play a lot of music. I'm still a guitar player and um, I teach and uh, I'm sort of waiting for the next book to gestate. In your intro to the memoir, before you talk about Whoopi
0: Goldberg's wedding that you were at, you talk about the counterculture in a way that opened my head up a bit. Basically, it was a very unsentimental looking back about the good and the bad. I think the metaphor that you use is you can't grow tomatoes without shit. Yeah, there was a, There was a lot of shit, but we grew a lot of tomatoes. And I just wonder whether, from where you are now, as an 81-year-old, having lived through all that stuff, what it means to you now, all the stuff that you you did and then... And also, where is it now? Not in you, but in the culture. Because you say this thing that the counterculture is absolutely essential for the culture, and it didn't start in the 50s. It went back through time. It's always been there. So my sort of second question for you is, is that, is it still here? Where is it?
1: Yeah. So... I think one of the mistakes we made was adhering to a style or a series of styles. If I was going to make a radical magazine today, I'd make it look just like time. <laughs> why, why signal somebody, you know, that it's with marijuana leaves on the outside, that this is like mm. extremist kind of, I think much of the counterculture today looks invisible, I mean, you still have punks and you still have goths and kids piercing themselves. The world that they inherited is much tougher than the world we lived in. And they have a right, perhaps, to fault us. I mean, my friends and I played for keeps. Hmm. We died doing this. We gave everything we could, but we failed and we failed, we have to take responsibility for those failures. Why did you fail? What does that mean? Well, first of all, we didn't discipline our human nature. We didn't keep it focused. We didn't check in to see how we were doing. Oh God, we're driving working class people away, or they think we're unpatriotic, or, you know, made mistakes. So that's one way it failed. It failed because the forces of unregulated capitalism play to human greed which is one of our evolutionary inheritances. It's like using sex in advertising. It's very, very hard to defeat. And the capitalists have been remarkably uh, versatile and evolutionary in their appeals. You know, so kids are paying $50 for a T-shirt with a brand on it. And they don't understand that they're building up identities based on brands that can be bought and sold. Hmm. And eventually, during the 60s, they were doing issues in vogue on hippie fashions based on Army-Navy stores and used hmm. clothing. So it, it sucks everything into it. So the idea of standing separate is impossible. Hmm. You can't stand outside the culture. You can't, just because you disagree with fossil fuels or Mm. I've got LED lights in my house and I drive an electric car, that doesn't mean I'm outside the culture. The car was mined rubber, mined tin, mined copper. You know, the electricity might be making, being made by coal somewhere else. Mm. So the idea that we live in a kind of pure, exalted status is a mental pet. And we didn't always understand that. We were quite judgmental about other people. Hmm. And instead of being compassionate, you know, toward, let's say, friends of mine who were Native Americans, hmm. who were loggers, who had no way of earning a living except by cutting down huge trees. Well, hmm. they did their best. They were as caught by the system hmm. as we were. And they were trying to remain as true as they could. So the the failure is greed. Hmm. No one wants to regulate the flow of wealth in capitalism. I mean, Britain is regulated capitalism and Europe is regulated capitalism, sometimes more conservative, sometimes less. But everybody has health care. You don't see too many homeless people. Um, You know, people, everybody you pass on the streets has made a decision to take care of you when you get sick. Mm -hmm. That makes a huge difference from a culture in which everybody feels like they're on their own. Right. And if I did fall down, somebody might rifle my wallet before they called nine one one. Why did it fail? It failed by human nature. Mm -hmm. And it failed by not enough people realizing that they have commonalities that they could link to, to fight the system. I just had a letter published after this last mass shooting in my local paper, and the letter was called, how long are we gonna pretend to be stupid? To paraphrase it, it's like another mass shooting, more flowers against the fence, more our prayers are with you, more nothing being done. And nothing's being done because people don't want to admit that the American political system is organized around the procurement and disbursement of money. And because of that, and because of the Supreme Court decision, removing all limits on the giving of money, even making it anonymous, Hmm. money controls our electoral system. And the reason that the guns are still out there is because the NRA is the lobbyist for the American armaments industry. And it protects itself by claiming to represent small hunters and target shooters Hmm collectors and family guys like me. I'm a competitive pistol shooter, you know? And so they do that and they control the money Mm. that goes to Congress. And consequently, the 90% of the people who favor reasonable gun regulations are not represented. And it's the same for the military budget. It's the same for everything. So to my way of thinking, until we have full federal funding Mm. of elections, everybody gets Mm. the same amount, until we prohibit corporations from spending tax-deductible money to influence public policy for their shareholders, and until we prohibit gifts of any kind from lobbyists, the Congress remains a wholly owned subsidiary of big capital. And it's not like there aren't good people, Mm. but the good people are forced to make draconian choices to stay in office.
0: You said something though, that also is a kind of ray of hope because you said that the counterculture is there, it's just become invisible. And I mean, there's something which you mentioned right back at the beginning as well, which is that the, my next project is whatever happened to the counterculture and to look at here in the UK. Uh, and all the things that you mentioned about the women's movement, the gay movement, the environmental movement, there are entrepreneurs like Craig Sams, the guy who's American actually, but he brought macrobiotic eating to London uh-huh. in the end of 1960s, yeah. uh, and then, you know, founded Whole Earth Foods and Green and Black's Chocolate, and he's still doing it. You know, there are other people, they're doing their best, right? But also, you say it's still there. There is always an underground. and um, it's, it's a little bit like the unconscious. By definition, it's a bit invisible, out of sight. And but... I think
1: it's better to be invisible, hmm. because the visibility draws distinctions and divisions between people. When we went to Washington to protest Kennedy, we cut our hair short, we wore jackets and ties, we knew that we would be attacked. Hmm. So when I call it the counterculture, what I really mean is human-centric, earth-centric, compassionate values are being represented in people's lives. Politics takes a long time. Hmm. And whether or not we'll ever pass the threshold to make America a more compassionate, country more operated by ideas than raw power I don't know what about
0: for you Peter you're 81 years old what's next dying (laughs) Dying. tell me how how do you die good how do you die well
1: what's what What you live well I I'm in love with a woman age-appropriate grandma we're just having (laughs) the best time of my life imaginable it's like the relationship I always hoped for I call mm-hmm. it static free um it's complicated <laughs> she has grandkids she has to look after we see each other three or four days a week um I'm just gonna keep on doing what I do as long as I can I mean loving my kids and my granddaughter and uh, taking care of my dogs taking care of this property we said we mentioned uh,
0: the tongue of a crow um would you mind reading a, another poem from that collection?
1: Um, This is called Two Conversations in Chicago. So I must have been in my 60s by the time I wrote this poem. I'm visiting another Zen friend in Chicago. I'm going to do a Dharma talk at his Zendo. I'm in a hotel getting in an elevator. If these walls could talk, huh? She gurgles conspiratorially, maneuvering a pink suitcase between the stainless steel jaws of the elevator as they hiss closed. I'm trapped in the bad air of her soiled hair, sullen face, cheesy white plastic belt, and cheap shoes. I disguise a gasp as preparation to speak. These walls, you mean the Chicago thing? Capone? She cocks her head as if inquiring if I'm alive what did you think I meant? And the rumble of our descent appears to emanate from her mouth as a growl. I couldn't say, I wasn't thinking anything. I didn't say, why don't you get your teeth fixed or brush them? I nearly said, hey, I've been demoted by divorce of a wife I never cheated on to this shabby shithole hotel and the forced confinement of an eight-floor drop while my silence is being violated by a woman resembling a pork chop. I wanted to say, couldn't we just stand here perfectly quiet? Couldn't we just stand here quietly while I stare into the perfect, undistorted mirror of myself? that is you.
0: Peter Coyote, thanks for coming to
1: the Bureau of Lost Culture. Well, I love that. That hooked me from go. (laughs) Stephen, let me ask you, I'd like you to give me like a little more information about what your podcasts are about. I mean, they're really good. What I'm trying
0: to do is build a history of counterculture because I'm trying to educate myself and share what I'm learning. And the value in recording oral testimonies, you know, people across the arts, writers, musicians, cultural commentators, historians, because it feels to me like this incredibly valuable thing happened before my time. Uh, and my sense is that it is still there
1: uh, somehow. So the only thing I want to say to you about a counterculture, what you have to do is go in and find the human roots inside yourself that you're going to follow, the human intentions. And it doesn't matter how it looks. Compassion has no fixed style. Kindness has no fixed style. Vaclav Havel said, there's no rule preventing you from greeting your customers warmly. There's no rule preventing you from sweeping the street outside your store. So in your explanation of what's to be learned, why not try and see if you the extent to which you can discover the human roots of the counterculture which i would suggest are based on the fecundity of the earth respect for all the uh, all the creations of nature respect for the feminine respect for the intuitive as opposed to the logical and the uh, acquisitive and if you do that, it'll take you away from style. And it will take you, move you into the larger human community where you can affect people invisibly. They don't even know. They just see it. They may not be able to name it, but they see it. And that's like having sending ripples out from dropping a stone in the water. Thank you so much. Oh, you're more than welcome. Thank you so much, Stephen. This, this has been, been- great.
0: I don't know why he's thanking me. I mean, apart from the gift of his time and tales, as I said at the top, he dropped several truth bombs on me. I means so much wisdom and experience, modestly communicated, poetically communicated. And uh, what a life, right? I recommend Peter's memoirs. Sleeping Where I Fall and The Ray Man's Third Cure. His book of poetry, Tongue of a Crow, we heard some extracts from that. His extraordinary piece, When the Lone Ranger and Tonto Meet the Buddha, masks meditation and improvised play to induce liberated states. Wow. All sorts of other stuff. Thank you for listening. Thank you to Soho Radio. You can check out our upcoming events including that hay festival that sequence and sign up for our newsletter i'm going to send out a special treat this week and access all our shows at bureauoflostculture.com thanks again to Jenny and of course to Peter Coyote let's finish with the real tuesday world and their track ghost lights